Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. Take a look behind a great product and you're always going to find one thing, a great customer support team. Treat your customers badly or fail to educate them on how your product actually works and, well, your product's lifespan is going to be a short one. Focus on providing an awesome human support experience, though, and you'll get free word of mouth and ultimately an even better product. No one at Intercom knows this better than our guest for today's show. That's our director of customer support, Jeff Gardner. Nearly five years ago, Jeff was hired as our sole frontline customer support person. He's the only person I know who's scaled a world-class customer support team and physically scaled Yosemite's El Capitan a whole six times. When he's not obsessing over our customers, you'll likely find Jeff in the mountains. Recently, I had a chance to connect with him from his home outside the Alps and talk to him a little bit about the values that anchor a successful support team. Treating the problem, not the symptom, means we're not just going to tell the user how to get the thing done and move on to the next user. We're actually going to take the extra second to go, is there a way we could change our product to make this type of question go away completely? Why writing is such an important skill for support hires. Being a good writer means that you are a good communicator. It means that you can structure information in a way that conveys meaning to another person. And where he thinks customer support is or isn't heading next. I think bots are super, super hyped in the sense that it's almost never easier to use a small keyboard or even a big keyboard to like back and forth with a bot that only understands a certain number of commands. If you like what you hear and want to catch more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And now... Let's get into our chat with Jeff Gardner. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be here. So uh, you started nearly five years ago at Intercom. Makes you a bit of an elder statesman around here. And when you did start, you were our entire support team. I'm curious, what were you doing before Intercom? And fast-forwarding a bit to today, how has our inbox volume and CS team size grown? Sure. So before Intercom, I was actually focused mostly on software engineering, software development. I did a couple of years of just freelancing, building uh, web apps for clients, and then after that worked for a very small company building iPhone apps for clients as well. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I knew about Intercom because I knew about Dez and Owen, and I'd been following their uh, contrast blog for several years. And I'm good friends with our VP of engineering, Derek Curran. So I'd kind of heard that there was this new thing coming along and uh, I guess just the stars aligned and there was an opening and I jumped at the chance to be able to work with those guys. So speaking of development, in your early days, you actually wrote our first iOS app? I did, yeah. I guess, uh, I don't know if that was a... um, an oversell on my part, but it was one of the things that I think maybe hopefully got my, you know, got my foot in the door. And I remember Owen was kind of going, yeah, well, we need somebody to look after support, but uh, you can build iPhone apps too, right? Okay. Okay, cool. Maybe you can do some of that at the beginning as well. Um, And in the beginning there, you know, there weren't enough support requests coming in. The inbox was actually pretty quiet back in those days. And so I just had quite a lot of free time during the day between answering customers that I could work on it. Well, I think a lot of our listeners are from very early stage companies, so where if if someone is in the case handling support, they probably have several other competing priorities on their plate too. So as that inbox volume began to to build up, how were you able to manage those competing priorities and make sure that you had time for these projects, but, you know, customers got the treatment they needed? So I guess from early on, uh, customers were always the priority. And so I, I never really minced words about, you know, yes, I'll work on these other projects. Yes, I'll try to get as many bug fixes done as I can. I'll, you know, do whatever I need to do in the time that I have. But that time is limited and our customers are our first priority. And so 
as that priority grew and as the load of that priority grew, the other stuff just sort of fell off the plate um, and and rightfully so, I suppose. And so as we had more customers and they were writing in more frequently, it became a full-time job and then it became more than a full-time job. And then we started looking around to hire and, and start to build out the team. Yeah. So when you started to build out the team, uh, you'll have to correct me about the number. I'm not sure if I had this exactly right, but um, sort of this system around volume of initiated conversations, like for every 35 extra conversations a day, maybe adding a team member or so. Between sort of supporting the customers and building this team out, how are you able to find time for more foundational things, like, say, instilling team values and things like that? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a slightly simplified version of things, but um, we did have kind of an idea in our mind of, you know, what was a reasonable workload? Um, what was a workload that left enough time to actually feel like you could give customers, you know, your full undivided attention for the amount of time that they needed? And it was somewhere in the neighborhood of around 30, 35 conversations per day. Now, I guess when we were scaling the team, I kind of built out a hiring model that tries to take into account a, a bunch of different factors. And it's it's fairly accurate. It does work pretty well. But uh, obviously, you know, there are always some assumptions built into most models and uh, ours is no different. So, you know, as we started growing, like you said, uh, we weren't always able to grow at the exact pace that we hoped to. And it pretty much has always been very, very busy. And I think that's no different for any support team. And so... I think for me, really the foundational stuff like team values came out of, you know, some really early conversations I had with one of our co-founders, Des, and, uh, and just talking, you know, we had had a few missed hires. And I think after those couple of missed hires, we kind of went back and, and kind of sat down and said, okay, what is it that we're actually trying to do here? Why? And what does that mean for how we act day to day? How do we talk to customers? What matters more than other things? And once we did that, it made hiring a lot easier and it made hiring the right people infinitely easier. And so I think because we were forced to do that early on, we actually benefited from that investment many, many times over because we've just hired the right people who have been extremely focused on giving great customer experiences. And that's meant that we've had to do a lot less work on other things. I'm glad you mentioned hiring. We'll get much more into that here in a bit. But um, speaking of values, I know your team has seven of them. I'm not going to list them out like a laundry list or anything, but... I picked out a few that I'd love to sort of toss at you rapid fire, and maybe if you could quickly let us know what what each of those mean and why they're so important to the way the team functions. So uh, start with focus on fundamentals. So this one is maybe my favorite, but is maybe the most contested of them among the team. To me, this value is all about really the basics of communicating, the basics of human psychology and behavior, the basics of just how do you give someone help personally, you know, as a human versus how do you avoid being what, you know, a lot of support teams get boxed into, which is just being hooked to a fire hose and just trying to deflect customers as fast as possible. And so, you know, it really comes back to that ability to write well, the ability to communicate well, ability to like distill complex situations and complex, I guess, bits of the product, because we have several very complex parts of our product, uh, into simple language that people just understand and can move forward with. It's, you know, it's not about, I guess, any fundamental thing of customer support or anything. It's really just about, you know, fundamentally, can you communicate as a human to another human being? Right. The, the fundamentals of, of actual interaction. Right. Exactly. And another one of mine that I, that I really like, particularly when I've worked with your team through customer days, where each of us from all different parts of the company get to sit down and actually work the inbox for a day, is uh, this idea of, of treat the problem, not the symptom. Yeah, certainly in the beginning, Intercom was a much more complex and difficult product to get started using. 
Uh, and our growth team has done a fantastic job of, you know, making every step of the process a lot, lot easier than it used to be. But certainly in the beginning, it was very difficult to get started. And so we always treated, we tried to think and, you know, do the five whys and ask ourselves, okay, why is this customer asking this question? Why are they having that problem? Why are they running into this? What does it come back to? And and it sort of does come back to that jobs to be done framework that we use for a lot of things in Intercom. But, you know, treating the problem, not the symptom means we're not just going to tell the user how to get the thing done and move on to the next user. We're actually going to take the extra second to go, is there a way we could change our product to make this type of question go away completely? And the, uh, the next one I have for you sort of features, I think what's you hear every customer support team use the adjective at the end of this uh, this forward value, but when people really dig into it, I think that's when you can tell if they're they're genuine about it or not. But that is connect personally with empathy. Yeah, so I, there's kind of two parts here, and you can unpack it uh, in a couple of different ways. But you're right, like it's it's a word that's thrown around. Empathy is thrown around quite a lot. But to me, there's kind of there's two big types of empathy, uh, and I'll probably butcher this, but. There's the type of empathy where you feel bad for someone that's in a bad situation. You know, you're kind of like, you know, that person got in a car accident. I feel bad for them. Like, that must suck. Then there's a different type of empathy, which is cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is, is much more the type of empathy where you're actually putting yourself in their position, putting yourself in their shoes, thinking hard on, like, what are the challenges that they're facing? Why are they asking this question right now? And when you connect that with, you know, connecting personally with the person themselves and thinking about their day and thinking about what their challenge is and what they're trying to get done and, you know, why they're writing in to you at Intercom, you know, they're obviously having a problem or they're confused about something that's slowing their job down. And so I think it makes angry customers a lot, you know, it takes the teeth out of angry customers. It, it just gives you a lot better sense of, you know, there's another person on the other end of this line. They are not in a great place at the moment. I'm here to help get them out of that bad place. I'm here to help understand what they're going through and figure out how to fix it for them. You mentioned writing there earlier, and um, there's an old signal versus noise blog post that basically says, you know, for any position, all things created equal, you should uh, always hire the the better writer. And just off offline, I've heard you mention this too a lot that writing skills have really been an area of emphasis for you as you've grown the team at Intercom. So what is it specifically that you're looking for there and what other attributes stand out for you for what you've seen with successful customer support hires? Yeah, I love that post. I, I, I think it's um, it's actually really hard to find these days, I think. I don't know if it made it the transition from their old blog to Medium, but um, I really, really love that post. Um, and I think it really does come back to that, you know, that focus on fundamentals value. Being a good writer means that you are a good communicator. It means that you can structure information in a way that conveys meaning to another person. And being a really great writer versus being an okay writer, um, you know, it seems like once you get the basics down, you're fine. And, you know, okay, fine. We've all written papers in school and, you know, we can all, you know, put our point down, back it up with three different things and then write a conclusion. But to me, writing skill is all about like, how few words can you use? How short of a sentence can you write? How clear of a message can you give to someone? And how much can you convey both kind of meaning and also emotion in there? And so one of the things we do, one of the steps in our interview process is to have people do a, you know, basically a written take-home test. And it's before we do any of the other interviews. It's one of the first steps. And we ask a lot of questions that, you know, Certainly, they're aimed towards the person's thought process around customers and around giving people great experiences and around the types of things they're going to be faced with in their day-to-day job. 
But to me, more than half of that test is really about how well can you convey those ideas and how quickly can you convey those ideas and how clearly can you convey those ideas. And how does voice and tone play into that? I mean, obviously, they've got to adjust to a whole range of situations there. Yeah. So, you know, I guess we've got a very clear tone at Intercom. We speak in a very, I guess, recognizable way, at least I feel like. And certainly on the support team, we have a whole doc in our wiki that basically goes over how we talk to customers. And it basically outlines what that tone is and what that voice is. And it's, it's not to say that we want people to all sound exactly the same. We want everybody to add their own flavor to it and, you know, like that value, connect personally with empathy. You've got to use some of yourself in there to actually, you know, make that type of empathy work. And so it's not necessarily about having everybody sound exactly the same or have somebody give you the answer the way you would write the answer. It's about seeing a bit of their personality in the answer and but also having a lot of meaning conveyed and having a lot of depth conveyed as well. You know, some of the best answers I've ever seen for some of these questions are, are ones that have two or three different layers to them. And, you know, when you read them the first time, you can kind of glance through and go, okay, that was a good answer. And then you kind of look at it again and you're like, that's actually a really, really good answer. We're here in the studio with Intercom Director of Customer Support, Jeff Gardner. So Jeff, as you've scaled the team and it's begun to grow, we now have a lot more remote CS teammates in places like APAC, for instance. A lot of our listeners are probably looking down the road trying to figure out when they sort of need to say, okay, do we need to offer 24-7 support? Do we need to move and have people that are in a lot more places where our customers are? How did we come to the conclusion that it was time to expand that way? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think it really is going to vary massively for every company, depending on you know their customer base and where where their customers are and what type of product they are and you know how mission critical their product is like how much are customers willing to wait a little longer or not um, for us I think we decided pretty early on that we wanted to be able to start aiming towards 24/7 coverage uh, early on you know our, our mission is to make business personal and so to us a big part of that was like having a person ready to talk to somebody most hours of the day most days of the week. And certainly as we got closer to 24-7, you know, a lot of things have to change. But, uh, you know, one of the things for us is we didn't have an office in Australia, you know, in the Australia Pacific region. So we had to do what we had to do, which was hire remote people. And to be honest, I guess, you know, this makes sense coming from me since I am remote myself. But right. we, um, we had a lot of success with hiring remote people. I think there's a certain type of person that if they've worked remote for a certain period of time, they understand the challenges, they understand the limitations, but they're also doing it out of choice. And so they kind of already know, hey, this like I've got a good deal going here. I get to work from home and, and that suits me. And that's kind of what they're going for. And so, you know, there's, there's obviously trade-offs. It's much harder to manage a team that's global like that. It's much harder to be a manager of somebody that is uh, nine time zones away from you. You are certainly not going to do as good a job managing that person as if you were sitting in the same room with them. But at the same time, the trade-off for us was worth it in the sense that we could give our customers much better service, uh, much faster service. And I didn't think that the risk was one that was going to stop us from trying to go after it. As you mentioned, you're, you're remote. You're in, uh, in Italy, out near the Alps. And we also, we just opened a new office in Chicago this past fall, which at least for now is, is home primarily to uh, customer support folks. I think we got nine or 10 people in that office. Um, as you sort of spread the team further and further, is it harder to get new hires to sort of buy into the, the value and culture you've established? How do you keep everyone connected with that as, as the team spreads? 
It's definitely harder. Uh, anybody that says otherwise is lying. Um, for sure. <laughs> it is not an easy thing to do. And I think even something as simple as like trying to get a customer support all hands meeting scheduled, you know, you have to just accept the fact that not everybody's going to be there because some of the team is asleep, you know, because every single hour of the day, some of the team is asleep. And so it's definitely not easy. It's one of those things you have to really, really focus on. Uh, and I think this is where having those values entwined with everything we do from hiring to onboarding to, you know, the regular performance reviews that people do, it's really important because that's the only way that people are going to understand what that culture is. And and I've heard it said, I think it's Seth Godin that said that um, culture beats everything. You know, culture beats strategy, culture beats everything. And you're going to have a culture whether you want to or not. And whatever that culture is, it's going to trump whatever you say you want done. And so it's important to just really, really double down on like making sure that everybody understands it, one, but two, everybody actually celebrates it when people do a good job at the culture and call out when people, you know, fail or fall short of the culture. Onboarding these hires specifically, what are some of the biggest lessons you know you've learned as you went through the first couple rounds of this? Now I think you probably have it have it down to some degree. Yeah, so I mean, onboarding for us is now a pretty highly refined process. We've gone through a couple of versions of it. Um, we've got a couple people on the team who have done an incredible job of just codifying everything about our onboarding and, and making it as succinct as possible while still you know keeping a lot of the depth there. And, you know, onboarding for people in an office, it's their first two weeks is like primarily onboarding, nothing else. And then, you know, there's some kind of follow on stuff that goes on for several more weeks after that. And actually, we've just decided with all the remote people that we hire, we bring them to a, one of our offices uh, to do two weeks of onboarding with part of the team. And I think, again, that kind of helps, uh, helps instill that company culture, helps it you know, helps the remote hire feel like a part of something bigger than just themselves in their, you know, in their attic or in their bedroom working and, and helps really to kind of kickstart their product knowledge and kickstart their understanding of our product. It's always good to know someone by more than just a Slack avatar. Definitely. Absolutely. So we've looked inward a little bit at some of the lessons you've learned growing the team and things of that nature over the last several years. I want to sort of flip that a little bit and look out more at customer support as a whole. As someone who's made a career out of it, I'm sure you've got quite a few pet peeves you see of, of things that just other companies do and it bothers the hell out of you, whether it's it's not empathetic or not personal, et cetera. I hosted uh, Basecamp's Chase Clemens on the show back in the fall, and he gave a very uh, passionate speech against no reply email addresses being sort of his his number one trigger item. What is it out there that, that you think startups should just absolutely avoid that's a common pitfall? Man, there is so much here. <laughs> this is a very rich topic. Um, I, you know, I think it's only been recently that I've kind of said a, a lot of times that I've landed reluctantly in customer support in a certain sense. Um, you know, I really enjoyed building software. Uh, you know, I think it's great fun. I think there's a ton of learning there. I was never fantastically good at it, but I did enjoy it a lot. But I kind of looking back with, you know, that 2020 hindsight, I've realized that there are so many things that so many companies and businesses do that really bother me that I think the customer support side of things was always buried there deep inside. <laughs> and so there's, there's a multitude of things. You know, I think the no reply email addresses is a, is a minor one that is very annoying. To me, the worst thing is when companies just kind of treat it as if it's uh, simply something to be outsourced or simply something that doesn't matter to their overall business you know, they're selling widgets and they're just like, somebody's going to buy these widgets no matter what. And we don't really care about them, but they're going to pay, you know, our price for the widgets. 
And thankfully, a lot of this is changing, but business depends on customers. Without customers, there is no business. And so it's impossible for you know businesses and certainly SaaS businesses that rely on repeat business over and over every single month, it's impossible to ignore your customers and it's impossible to treat them badly and think you're going to be around for very long. So I think there's a whole host of things there that companies just do very poorly when they don't focus on the customer experience and they don't remember that you know, building a great product and a beautiful product and a well-designed product is only half the battle. You still have to get that product into the hands of your customers and make sure that they actually understand it. Right. They, they control your, uh, your reputation and your livelihood. They control everything. And like, I mean, really everything. So, I mean, you can build the nicest, most beautiful thing in the world. And uh, if no one buys it, you're sunk. Like it doesn't matter what you've built because no one's going to use it. Well, when it, it comes to other things that are uh, happening moving forward, as you said, thankfully people are moving away from that approach to some degree. We're just recently past the uh, sort of annoying era of end of the year, beginning of the year, wrap-up articles. Here's our projections for trends for 2017, the next five years, all that stuff. But as I went through these, particularly when it comes to customer support, I think the one that popped up almost universally is self-serve support as an option in addition to the the human support you provide. And we just released our, our Educate product, our knowledge base, back in December. So I, obviously that sort of backs it up. We're, we're believers in that. So what role should self-serve content play to balance out the approach that our support team gives out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really interesting one because it's it's not that, uh, I guess, self-serve content or knowledge bases ha- are like a new thing. They're not a new concept at all. They've been around for quite a while, but I think the implementation has been really poor for a long time. Uh, and I think where there's a lot of room to grow and where I, you know, where I know we're hoping to take things is is really in that smartly serving content when that's what the customer wants uh, and smartly serving a human when that's what the customer wants. And I think that is actually really, really difficult. It sounds super simple, but it's actually terribly hard to kind of understand the intent of a customer and understand what exactly it is that they're going to be best served by in any situation. I think I speak for myself, but I know I speak for a lot of other people out there when I say that I would always rather get a docs article and get my problem fixed in 10 seconds of reading rather than trying to talk to a human. You know, as much as I like talking to humans and as much as I love when I get great support from someone, it's still just easier to read for 10 seconds and then have the problem solved and move on with my life. And so I think that smart serving of the right type of content or the right type of support interaction, whether it's served by a knowledge-based site or whether it's served by a human, is sort of the crux to unlocking a bunch of this stuff. And I think hopefully this year is the year where we're going to see a lot more of that stuff happen. And addition to, in addition to self-serve, are there any other trends that you're seeing emerge that other startups should be sure to take note of? Well, there's one that I think is super, super hyped, uh, which is bots. And I think, you know, we've written it a few times about it on the blog. And actually, Hugh, one of our PMs, wrote about it very recently there. And I think bots are super, super hyped in the sense that it's almost never easier to use a small keyboard or even a big keyboard to like back and forth with a bot that only understands a certain number of commands. Right. You know, I think Hugh in his recent blog post likened it to like a command line interface and command line interfaces have been around as long as computers have been around. And so it's it's nothing new. It's not novel. It's not helpful for the most part. I'm actually really interested in voice interfaces. Uh, I recently got an Echo and it's been amazing. You know, I think it's one of those supernatural human things that we do is we just talk to each other. And if we could talk to computers and have them actually understand us well, I think that would be a pretty game-changing thing. 
And who in your mind, inside of software or outside of software, is there any company you've looked at as you've built the team at Intercom or been using their product and said, this is a really smart way to do support or really surprising way to do support? Is there any examples that we could learn from that are maybe a little bit more unconventional? Sure. So I guess to go a couple questions back there and talk a little bit about, you know, the companies that treat it like a cost center versus companies that really make an investment in their customers. I think KLM is one that I've been super impressed with a few times recently. And obviously, as you can imagine, if living in the Alps, I do fly to our offices really regularly. And so I'm on airplanes pretty, pretty frequently. And every time I fly KLM, I'm almost compelled to write into their support team because one, you can get them through Twitter or Facebook or uh, their site or their app or email or whatever you want, and they'll get back to you in usually around you know twenty or thirty minutes. And you can do so much, you know, so much, so many things that used to be really difficult with especially airlines, like changing your flight or canceling a flight or doing pretty complex things. You can just do it through Facebook Messenger now with them, and it really shows that they have thought about it and then gone okay. We're going to make a huge investment in this because obviously they get, you know, hundreds of thousands of support requests a week probably. And so they've got to have an army of people behind that in order to be able to answer those well. And, you know, they're not using bots. They're not like, you know, do you want to change your flight? Yes, no. Please respond why or in. You know, they, they have a human that responds back. They have a really great personal tone. They seem to have fun with it. They seem to be really relaxed about it. And generally they can get your stuff done really, really quickly Uh with that great tone. And so it's, they're one that I'm always really, really impressed with. All those things that you said that uh, used to be difficult are still, still difficult with my airline of choice. So you may have me uh, reevaluating things a little bit. Um, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. I think we'll leave it there. It's been a blast, Adam. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.